May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. This is part two of the conversation with Dr. Heather Martorella, a pain psychologist. We discuss thought patterns that are barriers to getting relief from chronic pain. These include negativity and catastrophic thinking patterns. These are also known as pain-related cognitive distortions. We discuss shifting from a place of acceptance to one of hope. This is the Conquering Your Fibromyalgia podcast. I am your host, Dr. Michael Lenz. I am and will continue to be practicing in southeastern Wisconsin in the metro Milwaukee area. I am an internist, pediatrician, lifestyle medicine physician, and a clinical lipidologist. In addition to those areas of care, I also have enjoyed working with those struggling with fibromyalgia and overlapping pain conditions such as chronic fatigue syndrome, POTS, irritable bowel, and migraines, to name just a few. I am author of the book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain. This podcast is meant for those living with fibromyalgia, their loved ones, and also the medical community so they can learn more about helping their patients live better with fibro. For too long, depression was not considered a real problem deserving of real answers and real solutions. So, too, it is with fibromyalgia and related problems. Most people living with these conditions are left frustrated and in deep despair. They have gone years and often decades down many failed attempts at getting better, often falling prey to predatory and opportunistic treatments without strong support for their efficacy. The good news is there is real evidence and real understanding and real solutions using a multifaceted approach blending the best of medical management and lifestyle medicine. A quick disclaimer, this podcast is for educational purposes only. While I am a doctor, I am not your doctor. All signs and symptoms should be discussed with your own individual doctor. Now on to this week's episode. You mentioned catastrophizing. What is the most common thoughts? What are some things that people maybe who are listening can do exercises on their own and between visits or self-reflection they can bring to a psychologist in that meantime who are maybe waiting to get in? Got it. There are so many things, but I think if we're looking really just about how thoughts are playing a role in this process, then catastrophizing is one of the most unhelpful and most common thought patterns that people can get stuck into. And it makes a lot of sense that we get stuck in that place. If their hope has been bashed, that things have been getting worse. So they actually have evidence for themselves that their quality of life has deteriorated. Their functioning has become further impaired over time often. And so it makes sense that our brain was going to go to what's the next shoe that's going to fall, right? The next thing that's going to drop, what's going to happen next. It's not going to go well. What's going to fail for me. And it, the more we can recognize that we're having these thought patterns. And it's not only that one, it can be our thinking becomes more rigid. 
lose sight of all of the gray areas of life and things become more black and white, the all or nothing thinking. I always feel this way. I never feel good. I never have good days or good moments or they're so rare that our thinking becomes more rigid and we are less able to see potential opportunities for relief or we stop engaging in pleasant and pleasurable activities in life because everything feels so horrible. So we have to watch out for that negativity bias and the all or nothing thinking that's also known as like black and white thinking. Those are some big common ones as well that kind of like to pair up well with catastrophizing. And those are all unhelpful patterns of thinking that can keep us stuck in a place of not being able to really take action and make changes for ourselves. So first, it's being aware of these things. What are some of these unhelpful thinking patterns? Or if people want to look them up online, they can look them up for what are pain-related cognitive distortions. That would be the terms that they might want to search for or irrational belief systems related to pain. Then they can start seeing lists and there's hundreds of these different types of what we'll call cognitive distortions. Usually when talking with people, I'll ask them to identify the top three to five of these unhelpful thinking patterns is the way I prefer to think of them is that they're not serving you well. We all have these ways of thinking. It's when they start becoming pervasive and controlling our lives, that they become more problematic. So if I'm talking with someone and I'm hearing a lot of catastrophizing thoughts, a lot of that worst case scenario, also known as like the snowball effect, right? A lot of the what ifs, and it's a lot of what if things don't go well, not of what if things go right, then I will start identifying those and pointing them out to people. So it can be helpful to actually learn about these different types of unhelpful thinking patterns and share them with loved ones, people who may be interacting with you, and ask them to help you recognize them. So often, I used to have a fibromyalgia support group, educational program in the fibromyalgia support group, and I would ask people to lovingly, right, with compassion, help point out to others, I think you're falling into some stinking thinking there, right? Or there's some, maybe that might be some catastrophizing, right? Or are you getting stuck in the shoulda, woulda, couldas? And so talking with others as you educate yourself about if there's someone that you're confiding in, It doesn't even have to be a pain-trained psychotherapist. Maybe you're just meeting with someone else who's trying to be helpful. And if you're able to tell them about some of these thinking patterns you're recognizing for yourself, pardon me, thinking patterns you're recognizing for yourself, if they can help point them out to you, you can see the frequency with which they're happening. And being able to just be aware of them makes it less likely you're going to keep falling into them because now you have control over, oh, this is where my brain keeps going, right? And it's trying to protect me. It's not necessarily there to punish you. It's trying to provide some protection, but we want to educate ourselves on these are actually not helpful. So maybe the intention of the nervous system keeping us safe is there for sure, but we want to start finding what are the things that are going to be helpful and moving me forward so I can be functional more fully again, identifying it as first. So many good thoughts and this bi-directional aspect of things that come to my mind because pointing out things from a loving friend or family member, partner, spouse, etc., can sometimes, just like your explanation, like all we talked in the beginning, by the time they see somebody like you, it's the pretty much you're a hypochondriac, go talk to the psychologist, and or it can be perceived as gaslighting by a loving member who is basically saying, ah, you're just so sensitive. Oh my goodness. Or some version of those, which then can be perceived as being gaslit because nobody's validating. So it's, this is a really delicate discussion. And I think that many people may have been to providers who may have tried to frame it the way you are, 
but may have come across that they weren't being listened to. I know that you do because you get to hear their whole story and recognize that they are struggling and they don't want to be this way and they aren't purposely willing it. That's why nobody, I said earlier, nobody's intentionally wanting this, but these Con- these wet concrete that becomes hardened into these thought patterns that is reinforced by failing. Can you speak to that from your experience? And I'm guessing that's a similar challenge that you're having to delicately wade into. And every person is an individual who receives these information at different levels, I'm guessing. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I want to briefly interrupt the podcast to inform you about the Fibromyalgia Starter Pack, which is now available. If you are new to this podcast, it categorizes the episodes in a way that is more beneficial for those new to fibromyalgia. You can access the link in the show notes to learn more. Certainly, yes. Often when people come in to meet with a pain psychologist, what I hear is, I don't want to see you. I don't take it personally, but I don't want to see you. My doctor thinks it's all in my brain. And so they've given up on me. And so now they're sending me to you because they think I'm crazy. It's okay. Hopefully that's not their thinking pattern. I think that's unlikely. Generally, the medical providers who do refer to me are aware of the biopsychosocial and spiritual model. And they know that there's a lot that can be done for you. So they're actually trying to get you to the right path, right? They want you in this interdisciplinary type of approach that they're saying the medical model is no longer what's going to serve you best. Instead, the biopsychosocial model is going to serve you best. I think sometimes there's medical gaslighting as well, not just from our loved ones. So that can have taken place as well. And people feel like others have given up on them or like you were saying that they're being invalidated in their experience. And I think it could be very validating to talk with others who have chronic pain conditions, whether it's fibromyalgia or another pain condition that is about their nervous system being sensitized so that they can all start validating each other in those ways. You're not alone in this. There are so many people in around the world, but I'm going to talk about the U.S., that are dealing with chronic pain on a regular basis. And because pain is invisible, it's silent, and we often don't know that other people are experiencing these things. So being able to talk with people who can relate can be very validating. We want to watch out that it's not about commiserating though, right? That it's really about feeling validated and okay, now what are the actions I can take? So I don't want to settle into a place of this is as good as it's going to get and I'm just accepting it. Often people will think when they come to a pain psychologist, I'm just going to accept or you're wanting me to accept that I'm just going to be stuck like this forever. And I said, no, the opposite. I want to help you learn how to advocate for yourself in the medical model, but also for yourself in your life, how to motivate yourself to not give up hope. And yes, accepting that this is where things are in this moment and things can change, right? Yeah. How do we make things change now? So again, I come back to that building of hope and having people starting to find evidence for themselves that things can be different. That's why I've tried to share on the podcast stories of people who've gotten better. As I say, I try to blend the best of medical and lifestyle management, which lifestyle medicine, which is about combining the biopsychosocial and so many aspects and trying to find the healthiest ways, in a sense, trying to coach. The podcast was started because I don't have enough time to explain the complexities of how to manage. This is, and having people like yourself on this to have this evergreen conversation that we're having to listen and saying, okay, so this is a real thing. There's a role for this. I have to be then an advocate for myself. And when they come in, 
to you if they've already listened to this episode and they've done a lot of the pre-work. They've already hopefully come in with, wow, I've learned in the three months waiting to get in that I've actually gotten 27% better based on my fibromyalgia impact score or something like that by just having that awareness and looking at things differently and then having somebody like you to build on that and make it easier, right? So you wouldn't have to see them for as long because you can get them back on track because they're, unfortunately, as you say, so many people are affected by this that unfortunately not enough pain psychologists, let alone trained in pain, are able to handle everybody that could really benefit from care. And I also liked the idea of not commiserating because sometimes you can have, going back, the learned helplessness, that idea that I'm helpless, right? This depression. So learned helplessness can contribute to now significant experiences of depression. And often people with chronic pain are developing anxiety. All of the what if, what's to come, the worst case scenario, that's that catastrophizing is the future focus. This is just going to get worse and worse. And then we have depression that is past focused. Look at all these losses, right? I'm still grieving my past life. So there can be a lot of that and how helping people be in the present moment, that this is where things are in the present moment but we don't have to predict the worst case scenario coming forward. We can make the present moment as best we can, given the resources around us. I did want to come back. May I just for a moment? You're resonating with how I look at things so much too, and so important. Perfect. Thanks. I like this because I keep seeing like a nodding along, like we're on the same kind of wavelength with it, right? The same understanding. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about how sometimes loved ones, maybe with the best intentions, are engaging in some gaslighting. Potentially. And I think that there's such a big thing about how loved ones interact with us or how we isolate ourselves away from loved ones who are doing their best to support us, but often feel helpless themselves to help their loved one. And so for them, it could be some of that giving up as well. Some learned helplessness. I'm not going to be able to help you. Or they'll say, why aren't the doctors fixing you? And that feels like more pressure and burden now on the person who's already suffering with their pain experience. And so that can really build things up, even though the intentions of our loved ones are I think I want to give them the benefit of the doubt too, right? That they're doing their best, but they feel helpless. And so they can also feel at a loss and sometimes start pulling away from or pushing away from those who are suffering. So sometimes it's about having assertive communication. And you mentioned the being able to be a self-advocate. So often it is about helping people learn how to communicate with loved ones, with their providers in ways that they feel empowered. So they don't feel like the victim anymore and they could start taking more control in their lives. Yeah. And I think often it's small levels of control when you're looking at activity, movement, good food choices, recognizing the tolerance, sleep, all of those. And unfortunately, as we know, there are genetic vulnerabilities that make people more susceptible to develop chronic pain. Sometimes there's a history of hopelessness because my mom or a lot of people are not even wanting to say they have fibromyalgia at age 33 because they look at their mom who was disabled and they think of it as a completely disabled and I'm not I'm not going to be like her, but you're showing some early signs of it. One of the things that I was wondering if you might be able to, a typical patient, whether it's a real or sanitized from a privacy standpoint type of patient and mm-hmm. how they have walked through and have improved and maybe even put into remission or gotten a lot better. How using 
the biopsychosocial model helps somebody in a, using a case, if you don't mind. Okay. So I'm thinking of a young man who had been experiencing pain for several years by the time that I saw them and their life had shrunk to the extent that they were living with roommates and they were spending their days. They were now unemployed and being supported by parents. They were in their thirties, but being supported by their parents financially to live in this situation. And they were spending their days playing video games because they'd pretty much given up on life. They'd had at least one reported suicide attempt and were now having thoughts of just not wanting to live any longer. And their family actually sought out treatment for them and insisted that in order to continue supporting them financially, that they had to follow up with some treatment, which is not the ideal way to go. Things are going to be working much better if people are motivated for themselves to get into this treatment. But for this particular person, it worked because he was actually motivated. He just needed the support of family members to say, hey, we're going to pay for this treatment. You need to go do this. You can't spend all your time doing the other. And so I learned from him very quickly that one of the things that gave him a good quality of life was being able to play golf with dad. That was a big bonding thing. They were best buddies and with the friends and that they had lost this whole social connection piece and were feeling very isolated and they had tried talking initially in the first year or two about people, about their pain with people that had stopped because people stopped wanting to hear about it. I think in part because it's very hard as a loved one to hear that your loved one is suffering and not be able to help them. So people do start pulling away. Not always, but a lot of people do. And so people can feel very abandoned and alone with their experience. And once I learned that one of the things that gave him a great sense of community connections, so we're looking at the social aspect of it, it made him feel mentally healthier because he was getting out into nature and engaging with loved ones and engaging his brain with the, how am I going to do this, engaging his body. But it had become something that was so painful for him. He had thrown out all of his golf clubs. And so in the process of our work, we started creating a smart goal about being able to golf again. And instead of being 18 holes, we're going to try and get up to nine holes during the course of treatment, the time that we had. And so I had to teach him about activity pacing, about neuroplasticity, about the harm alarm that's going off, maybe providing some misinformation to us about our sensations. So we're interpreting them as more danger and damage. So teaching him how to create a sense of safety in his body. And then we also worked alongside a physical therapist that the three of us briefly would meet together. And I wanted him to learn how to swing his golf club in a little bit of a different way than he had been before. So we're just teaching his nervous system that it can move in some ways that are different, but that are safe. Those other ways would have been safe as well. We'd already had his spine checked out and make sure that medically he was stable as far as that. But it was that he had all of these different, let's say trigger points, different areas in his body that were impacted. So he needed to learn some ways of moving a little bit differently and then started off very small where it was, okay, I want you to go do shoot a bucket of golf balls with your dad and you're going to shoot one of every five, right? So dad's going to shoot the other four in the five. You're just going to shoot one at a time. You're going to have some conversations about something unrelated to your pain and being able to engage in those ways. And he came back and was very angry with me. He ended up in a flare up. He'd overdone it. It hadn't been the one out of five. He was shooting every other one with his dad. And I was like, okay. And they did the whole bucket of balls. I was like, oh, that was a lot. So we wanted to scale it back down. So there were very small steps along the way for him being able to go out and do this with engaging with a group of friends. And he really was then trying to shoot just one, one ball at a time while the others were all rotating through. So he'd have time to just do some deep diaphragmatic breathing or some visualization practice, get himself grounded and 
being able to slowly pace up his activities and not doing this on a daily basis. Often for someone with fibromyalgia, for example, is we don't want to do the same activities every day in, day out, day in, day out. We want to alternate some of these different ways of action in our body. So I had him skip some days doing other things on the alternative day. So he's still remaining active. He's not falling into this excessive rest cycle. He's doing some active movement every day, but maybe changing it up in the ways that he's doing it. And over time, we were able to build it up to a point that he was doing the nine holes of golf and feeling like he had some control in his life again. He was getting some things back that had mattered so much to him. So we only had a short period of weeks to work together. It was eight weeks at that time that I was doing this intensive patient program, but that was the graduation ceremony. His parents provided him with a, okay, you're going to get a new set of golf clubs instead of having to rent them now because you've earned them right with this process. And he felt motivated. He had started applying to jobs again and feeling more active in his life. He had a dream again about someday having a partner. So things that he had given up on, he was feeling motivated to consider for himself. And he was taking a lot of action on a regular basis and feeling that he could, right? His confidence and his ability to do something to change things had increased hugely. So that was really great to see. So I didn't get to see his follow-up process in that particular program when I worked with him, but I know his trajectory was great. He was just making slow but steady progress. And we were seeing the progress increasing in how rapidly he was able to do more and expanding it, not just from those few things that he wanted to be able to improve in his life, but it was starting to generalize as well to other aspects of his life. Awesome. Those things are very fulfilling. Yeah. I think having measured expectations for him, he was maybe getting moving some in the beginning and thought, I'll push it. And that you went too fast and you probably warned him about that. And then he experienced it. And so ahead of time, you already had warned him. And everybody yes. listening who has fibromyalgia is one of the most common things because they will say, I can't exercise because I hurt. The good news is I say, the good news is you have a very good memory because you remember being able to do that easily. And you have friends of the same peer group that can. And that's great because you haven't lost all hope, but you have to do it a lot slower than somebody who isn't living with a vulnerable nervous system that tends to be hypervigilant and overreactive to normal things. If somebody who has broke their right leg and hasn't been able to walk for eight weeks might be able to recover much quicker, but if they have a more vulnerable nervous system. And if you at least have an awareness that this is a real thing, I talk about real answers mm -hmm. and real solutions for real pain, that this is real, but it doesn't mean you're being injured. You're not being harmed, although it feels the exact same way. One of the things I wanted to get to earlier, and this is where you can look up some bad pain thought processes on the internet. Unfortunately, what I think harms is you also can look up things that are preying on people with chronic pain. That's the holy grail that you have some special deficiency or there's a secret test or you have all of these other things that have to be chased after and that the doctors are maybe missing something, which uh, leads to that. And there can be overlapping mechanical things that have a small percentage of that, as you'd say, working with a therapist or maybe some mechanical things going on. But I like that there's hope. I've read things from what you've posted online about needing more people that can train. I think that one of the barriers 
for sometimes ends up being insurance coverage. Any thoughts to that as you can be an advocate for trying to support more care for people? What's your assessment of the state of what you do in the country? And if you could speak to people at the level of making decisions, what would you say where we're at now and what would you be hoping for helping the broader pain community? Yeah, there are so many in the psychological community that just don't want to work with this population, either because they feel ill-informed or ill-prepared to do, or those who get into it and give up because it is a challenging population to work with um, because of that lack of hope often. And it can be difficult to help people build up hope. And there's often not sufficient training, even in some of the health psychology programs, about how to really work well with this population. And because there is often a higher risk of suicidal thoughts or sometimes suicidality itself, a lot of people want to steer away from it. And because the work is very heavy and so many people with chronic pain have extensive trauma histories, adverse childhood experiences, things that are still weighing on them, that it can feel traumatizing even for the providers when you are hearing someone's story. So I think that really providing better quality and more intensive pain psychology treatment or training for those folks and mentoring. So if you're able to find those who have an interest in working with chronic pain, it's often people who've experienced it themselves and have clinical psychology or even some other forms of health psychology training programs and are interested in being mentored and learning about pain neuroscience education and effective tools for working with those with chronic pain. That's fabulous. I know that there are a lot of physical therapists who have been trained in dealing with acute pain, but increasingly there are those who are willing to learn more about how to work with chronic pain. And that's another avenue, another profession that we can really engage with more effectively, I think, particularly an interdisciplinary model. So there's that. Um, I think that also providing support for those who are going through it. So including, I'm talking about actually pain psychologists themselves, that because you are often exposed to a lot of trauma that may be triggering of your own, that being able to have a cohort or a consultation group for those who are doing pain psychology can be helpful as well. Thank you so much for all of you, what you've done. I think there in the psychology community and the broader medical community, there is just not the training and care that people have in dealing with this. I think it's so much of the medical model approach is being implemented. And when that fails, it's just blame the patient. I don't know what to do with you. What do you expect? I've sent you to all of these medical specialists that operate under the medical model and then finally get to the psychologist from the standpoint. I think the problem is that I think one message that I'm hoping that people can hear is that there's a lot more damage when you start to chase with the medical model mindset because the medical community is good at treating those things, and that's what they like to treat. So they'll try, even if it's maybe realistically only 10% of the real cause, that bulging disc or that herniated disc that they ask about the fact that's at the L4, it's a bulge. You have pain in your neck, back, shoulder, stomach. You have IBS, migraines. Is that likely the cause of that? But the system rewards doing procedures much more. And in the end, it just leads to frustration. And I think we both would feel that and many primary care doctors out there now have seen that with so many patients, but they're left uncertain. And that's where I thought hopefully 
the podcast and book and having more conversation can at least point people to start considering reframing, looking at things differently. And if there are some comorbid conditions that are affecting chronic pain that exist in the psychiatric and neurologic aspect and understanding how those are all playing a role. I think that would be so important and needed. That's part of the, I guess, the purpose of just trying to continue this podcast is to help. And it's so nice to have people like yourself knowing there's people across the country trying to help and hopefully we'll get the needed help. Any other thoughts that you have? Yeah, I think just that piece that you had about um, what would I like to see different, basically. And I think that in going to a lot of pain conferences, they are still so heavily focused on the medical model. It can be discouraging that the biopsychosocial model is, or the even that title, right? Oh, we're going to use a biopsychosocial approach and you actually get into it and find it's actually a medical model with just that label over it. Being able to have a lot of these conferences and insurance coverage, actually covering some of these services, I think will serve our patients and population a lot better. Yeah. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for having this conversation with us. And I, Maybe we'll have another talk again sometime. I know that you have a lot of interest in sleep and helping people sleep well. I was tempted to say, can you quick give us a quick thoughts on that? But there's nothing really quick and maybe we'll have another <laughs> conversation. But outside of that is an important part. I did some episodes in the fall about sleep and sleep hygiene, but that's an important part of that. Thanks again. And thanks for all the work that you do. Certainly. Thank you. This was fun. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. If you have enjoyed the podcast, please hit the like, follow, or subscribe button. Leave a five-star rating and review and share with others. That way, more can learn about living better with fibromyalgia. Until next week, go Team Fibro.